Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 43, Genesis chapter 43, as we continue going through the book of Genesis and I'm, I'm trying to make a promise to you that we'll finish up by Christmas time, but I have no guarantees. It just depends on how God works, but that's, that's the plan. How many of you like surprises? Are you alive out there? How many of you like, some of you like surprises? Yes, okay, good. Some of you like surprises. How many of you like surprises that come in movies or in literature where you're, you're reading along in the book or you're watching the movie and, wow, something just catches you off guard and surprises you? Now, back when I was a student in high school, and I don't know if they have to read this anymore, but there's a famous book in British literature that everybody had to read called Great Expectations by... Charles Dickens. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's an interesting book about a young boy named Pip. And Pip is an orphan that lives with his sister and brother-in-law as a blacksmith. And he lives out on the marshes of Kent in England. And one fateful day, he goes out to the marshes to play, and he confronts an escaped convict named Magwitch. And over the course of time, he helps Magwitch try to escape. He gives him a file. He gives him some food. And so eventually, he never sees Magwitch ever again. It kind of shows up at the beginning of the story. But as the story progresses, Pip is invited to go play with this young girl named Estella at this beautiful mansion, not really beautiful, but weird mansion, of this woman named Mrs. Havisham. Now, Mrs. Havisham is this wealthy, kind of strange, bizarre woman that ends up taking a liking to Pip. Well, fast forward into the future, and Pip is of age, and he gets word that somebody has bought him out of being a blacksmith and has given him a great opportunity to go to London and become a gentleman. And so, There's this mysterious benefactor that's given him all this money. So he goes to London and lives the life of a gentleman. And all this time, he thinks it's Miss Havisham that's been the benefactor, the one that has positioned him to live in London as a wealthy gentleman. But then there's one fateful night in his room where he comes face to face with Magwitch, the escaped convict after all those years. And then there's the plot twist he finds out that it's actually Magwitch who was the benefactor that had set him up for prosperity in London, not Mrs. Havisham. And it, and it crushes Pip because he, he thinks all this time it's Miss Havisham. And really what ended up happening was Magwitch was so impressed with Pip's kindness as a kid and helping him escape that he determined to make life better for Pip. And so he set Pip up to be this great, wealthy young man. And it was a plot twist that nobody was expecting in literature. Now, some of you aren't literature buffs and you're like, I don't care about great expectations. Give me something that's a little bit more accessible. Okay, let me give you something a little bit more accessible. I was a nine-year-old young boy in the movie theater when we heard those famous words, Luke, I am your father. (laughs) 
Empire Strikes Back. That's probably the greatest plot twist of any movie. Was anybody expecting that? Now, we've seen it so many times, and I can tell you, as a nine-year-old boy watching Empire Strikes Back, when, when Darth Vader drops the bomb, that was not expected. That's a plot twist of plot twists. Now, some of you are like, what's he talking about, these plot twists? There's a plot twist that's coming in Genesis We're not quite there yet. Genesis 44 is the ultimate plot twist, but in Genesis 43, we see some surprises, some things that take us off guard. They surprise the characters in the story, and they surprise us as well. And so let's just talk about what happened last week. If you remember last week, famine has hit Jacob's family in Canaan. They've got to take the journey to Egypt to buy grain. And they come upon Joseph. And Joseph's the prime minister. And Joseph speaks harshly to them, if you remember. And you wonder, why is Joseph speaking harshly to them? And it's all a test to see if they repented. And then what Joseph says is, you need to bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, back. And they keep Simeon in prison. And this is a a crazy thing because Jacob is not going to let Benjamin, his youngest son, go back, basically over my dead body. And so what Joseph does is he sends them back to Canaan and puts grain in their pouches as well as money in their pouches. And then when they get home, they realize that somehow this strange, mysterious thing has happened and they freak out and they panic and they tell their dad and Jacob freaks out and panics and says, why did you do this? And we find out that at the end of chapter 42, there's conflict. Jacob doesn't trust his sons. The brothers don't trust each other. There's no reunification with, with Joseph. Nobody emerges as a leader. They're still starving. Will the promise come true for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What will happen to Benjamin? What's going to happen? Let's dive into chapter 43. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to do two things. I want to simply read the story and make some commentary as we go through the story. And then when we get to the end, I want to wrap back around, and I want to show you three surprises that show up that you may not have caught as you're reading the story. So let's, let's look at Genesis chapter 43. Let's look at verses 1 through 14. This is, this is scene 1. Now, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. 
I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. They'd run out of food. And now Judah says, go back. Go back and get food. But the stipulation was, if they're to go back, they need to bring Benjamin, the youngest son. And Judah begins to remind Jacob of this situation. Now, who's the firstborn of Jacob's children? Reuben. But Reuben has proved himself to be a fool. Reuben has committed incest. Reuben basically said, I told you so. Reuben basically wanted to sacrifice his two sons so that he would make Jacob happy. You see, the sign of a failed leader is I told you so after the fact as opposed to leading out front and doing the right thing in the first place. Anybody can say, I told you so, after something fails. Few leaders are out in front of the group, looking at God's plan, doing the hard things, leading with integrity, taking those risks. And that's not Reuben. But there's a new leader in the family. Number one son, Reuben. Number two son, Simeon. Number three son, Levi. All three of those sons have basically disqualified themselves from leadership. But the fourth-born son begins to emerge as the leader, Judah. Judah. And so Judah emerges as the leader, and basically he reminds his father, we can't go down to Egypt unless we take Benjamin. And Jacob's distraught and says, why in the world did you tell the man that you had a younger brother. And Judah's like, we had no idea he was going to ask these questions. We're just being honest. The man asked these interesting questions, and we just answered them, them simply. And he asked about our family, and he asked about you, and he asked about our son. But notice in verse 9, Judah says, well, I'll be a pledge of his safety, and we'll go down. And their father says something very telling in verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send you back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Here's what Jacob's saying. I know God is sovereign, and I know that God has sovereignly orchestrated this, so it's no use fighting against God. If I send Benjamin down there and Benjamin does not come back, just like I sent Joseph out to find his brothers and Joseph never came back, it is God's sovereign will, and I can't fight it. It's going to happen whether I like it or not. He's resigned himself to God's sovereignty. Sometimes we don't like God's sovereignty. Sometimes we like to fight against God's sovereignty. 
But in the end, God wins. But notice what Jacob's name is called all throughout this chapter. He's called Israel. Did you catch it? He's called Israel because God is beginning to birth the nation of Israel through the leadership of Judah. You see, Jacob understands that he needs to yield to God's sovereignty. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So they go down back to Egypt. And this time they bring Benjamin with them, the youngest son. So let's go to scene two, and let's see what happens when they bring Benjamin back to Joseph. Let's pick up in verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we're brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us, and and we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and we had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard they should eat bread there. Okay, this is an interesting scene. They're brought before the steward of Joseph's house, and the brothers are afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they could be accused of being thieves. And so they don't know what's going to happen to them. Would Joseph put them in jail? Would Joseph release Simeon? Would Joseph do something to Benjamin? And so all they can do is plead their case and basically say, we're honest men. The first time we came down to buy food, we're on our way back. We open our sacks. We find there's food. We find there's money. We freaked out and we brought it back. And not only did we bring it back, but we brought back double. We're innocent men. We don't know what happened. And so there's signs of repentance in these brothers because they are being honest men. But they don't know what Joseph's going to do to them because the last time Joseph spoke harshly to them, would he imprison them? Would they ever get to go back to their home again? Would they leave their families down in Canaan to die of starvation? Would they ever see their dad, Jacob, again? Every fear is racing through their minds about what's going to happen here. But then the steward says in verse 23, chill out, guys. Paraphrase. Here's your brother Simeon. Go take a shower, and you're going to have a big, huge feast at noon with the man Joseph. Well, this is an interesting plot twist. To dine with Joseph 
I thought we were just coming back to buy grain. No, what they're doing is they're going to go to a feast. But here's a, here's a thing. Why in the world would the prime minister of Egypt invite us to his table to dine? This sounds maybe too good to be true. Is there a catch? What is going on here? There's still some suspicion. There's still some fear. They're not quite sure what to think about this. So let's shift to the last scene here where they eat with Joseph at this huge feast. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Joseph enters, and what do they do? They bow down. The brothers bow down just like Joseph's dream had prophesied when he was 17 years old. And then Joseph begins to ask questions about his dad. Is is your dad well? Yes, he's well. And then Joseph can't quite control himself. What does he do? He sees Benjamin, his birth blood brother. And the text here says that he, in verse 30, When Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother. Literally, in the little text, it says his compassions grew hot. At this point, Joseph can't control himself. He's got to excuse himself. He's got to leave the room, and he begins weeping because he's seen his brother. It's the second time Joseph weeps because he's on the verge of being reunited with his brother's. But then he comes out, composes himself, and says, let's eat. And there's two different tables. Joseph has to sit by himself because he's the prime minister. But the the Egyptians don't want to mix with the Hebrews, so the, the Hebrew brothers are at their own table. But I want you to notice something. How does the servant seat them? What does the text say? Look at verse 33. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. They're seated according to birth order. This would have been a little unsettling to those brothers. Who knew this? Who knew that Reuben was the oldest and Benjamin was the youngest? And so they're, they're sitting there, and the Scripture says they looked at one another in amazement. Literally in the Hebrew text, they were alarmed. Was something right around the corner? Is there there something ominous about to happen? This is very strange that we're sitting in birth order. 
Now, why does Joseph have them sit in birth order? Is it just to kind of play with their minds? Well, maybe sort of. It's a visual object lesson of everything that's wrong about this family. What's been the cause of, of pain in this family? Sibling rivalry. And so as they're seated in birth order, it's to heighten what is going on in the family. But then look at what happens. Who's at the last part? Who, who's at the very end of the table? Benjamin. Little Benji. We hate Benji. He's a little twerp. Almost as bad as Joseph because look what they do to Benji. Benji always gets preferential treatment. Look at what happens there. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much. Not again. I mean, we're 8,000 miles away from home, and he's still getting preferential treatment. Do these Egyptians know what they're doing to Benji? We can't stand Benji. He's his father's pride and joy. Jacob's always doting on Benji. He always gets first. Everything's about Benji. Reminds me of Marsha, Marsha, Marsha on the Brady Bunch. It's always about Marsha. It's always about Benji. We don't like him. So here's what Joseph is doing. He's setting up another test. He's purposely showing Benjamin preferential treatment as the youngest son to see how the older brothers are going to respond because what happened to Joseph 20 years earlier when they were jealous of him, when he came walking out in his coat of many colors, they were so jealous of him, they beat him and stripped him and threw him in a pit and left him for dead and sold him into slavery. Would they do that to Benjamin? Had these brothers truly repented? What is true repentance? Is it saying you're sorry? Is it crying a few tears and promising never to do it again? Or does Matthew 3, 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? True repentance always lasts and it bears fruit. Last week we saw a confession of guilt by these brothers. They, they confessed guilt. They, they were repenting, but would it last? Would that anger and jealousy rise up again when they saw Benjamin getting preferential treatment? What would they do? Now, at this point, the text doesn't tell us much, but how does the chapter end? Well, you could say they're, they're kind of getting drunk. <laughs> Literally, in the Hebrew text there, they were merry. They're getting drunk. They're enjoying themselves. It's a, it's a good time. But think about the imagery here. This is the first time in 20 years that all 12 brothers are eating together. What happened the last time these brothers were eating together? Go back in your Bibles to chapter 37 for just a minute. 20 years earlier in time, the last time these brothers were eating with Joseph. Chapter 37, look at verse 24. Chapter 37, verse 24. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. They ripped his cloak off of many colors. They stripped him. They beat him. They heard his cries for help. He's in the pit. He's yelling. He's screaming. And what do they do? They coldly and callously sit down to eat. It's the last time these brothers were eating, cold, 
calculated while their brother's riding in the prison. But now, all the brothers are reunited. And they're having a good time. There's joy. There's merriment. There's still a little suspicion as to why Benjamin's getting preferential treatment. And this is the setup. Joseph is doing one last setup One last ruse, one last trick, one last test to see if they're going to pass it. And so he's setting them up. And who knows, maybe he's getting them drunk so they don't know what he's going to do next to them. Will they act in revenge and jealousy with Benjamin? Will they repeat what they did with Joseph? Or will there be true repentance in these brothers? That's a straightforward telling of the story. Straightforward telling. But what I want to do is I want to show you three surprises that show up in here. If you just casually read the story, you don't quite catch it. Three surprises that point to Jesus in the gospel. Let me just remind you that these Old Testament stories are not just morality tales that give us some good information. We're not to read these and say, be like Joseph or don't be like Reuben. They're always geared to point us to Christ and what he's done for us in the gospel. So here's surprise number one. God's outrageous mercy to the desperately needy. God grants outrageous mercy to the desperately needy. Now, don't forget, what's going on in this story? What's going on? It's a famine. Don't forget that it's a famine. They're going to die if they don't go back to Egypt. They are in dire straits. They're a dysfunctional, needy family. And their only hope is to go back to the man in Egypt and ask for grain. They are at the mercy of Joseph. Joseph, as the prime minister, has every right to say, I'm going to refuse you grain. And as a matter of fact, you think I'm bad in locking up Simeon? I'm going to lock up all 12 of you, and I'm going to lock up Benjamin, and you're never going to see your dad again. Did he have every right to do that? He could have punished them. He could have exacted revenge upon them. He could have been very cruel to them, and they would have deserved it as sinners, as as guilty brothers that they were. But here's the surprise. What does Joseph, I mean, sorry, what does Jacob say in verse 14? Jacob has a prayer before he sends the brothers off. May El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the sovereign God. May he grant you mercy. Now let me give you a trivia question, a trivia answer here. Why is it important that it says mercy right there? May God grant you mercy. This is the very first time in the Bible the word mercy shows up. Hasn't shown up to this point yet. The particular word, mercy. And what's Jacob's prayer? Maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, God in his sovereignty will grant us mercy in the eyes of Jacob, I mean the eyes of Joseph. Who knows what awaits us? It could be punishment. It could be death. It could be imprisonment. I've resigned to send Benjamin down there. I may never see him again. Maybe, just maybe, God will show mercy. 
let me ask you a question. Are you not just like Jacob's family? Maybe not as dysfunctional, but spiritually hungry, in a famine, lost, desperate. And does not God have every right to punish us and send us to hell? Is God obligated to show us mercy? No. Romans 9, 15 through 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Newsflash. We cannot force God to show us mercy. We can't do anything good enough. We can't earn it. We can't force his hand. We can't try to arm twist him. We can't plead our case. We can't do anything to make God merciful to us. He's not indebted to us. But notice Joseph's prayer, or Joseph's answer to Jacob's prayer. Look at verse 29. Joseph sees Benjamin, lifts up his eyes and says, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be... Read it out loud. What does your text say? Gracious to you. God answers Jacob's prayer with a man who showed red-hot compassion for his younger brother. So much so that Joseph has to leave and cry because he loves his brother so much. May I say it this way? That's what God has done for us who are guilty and helpless and famine-stricken. He has red-hot compassion for his children and loves us. with a great, wonderful love that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, why is this such a surprise? You're thinking, this is not a surprise. Of course God loves us. I've grown up my whole life thinking that God loves us. Yes, but here's the surprise. God is love. God shows mercy. God shows compassion. But here's the surprise. He's not obligated to give it. He doesn't have to give it. If he never gave it to one of us in this room, he would still be Almighty God, and he owes us nothing but hell. And the very fact that he gives it, and he loves us, and he showers us with mercy and compassion is a surprise. Did you wake up this morning and thank God that you're not in hell? You should have. But most people don't think that. Most people don't wake up and think, thank you, God, I'm not in hell today. Because what do most people think? I'm entitled God owes me. We have this entitlement mentality to think that God is obligated to give us grace, that God is obligated to give us mercy. God is not obligated, but he chooses to do so while we are still sinners. That's why it's a surprise. That's why it's an outrageous surprise. So don't ever get over the fact that God shows you mercy because he doesn't have to, but he does because of his red-hot compassion for sinners, the way Joseph had red-hot compassion for his long-lost brother. Surprise number two. 
God grants overwhelming peace to the extremely guilty. Are the brothers guilty in this story? Yes, they've committed an egregious crime against Joseph. Do they have every, they don't know who Joseph is yet, but do they have every right to be afraid of Joseph as the prime minister? Yes. What does guilt produce in us? Fear. When you're guilty, you're fearful. Guilt produces fear of judgment, fear of getting caught, fear of justice. And yes, there is a day of judgment coming that if you're, if you're on that day of judgment and you have, don't have Christ as your Savior, you're guilty and there should be fear. You should fear the coming day of the Lord if you don't have Christ. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 23. The surprise. What does the servant say to these guilt-ridden, fearful brothers who are freaking out? Look at verse 23. He replied, peace to you. Don't be afraid. I'm here to grant you peace. I'm here to announce peace. Now, why? Why does he grant them peace? I want you to watch it carefully because sometimes you can skip over this and not see the magnitude of what the servant is saying right here in your Bibles. Look at verse 23. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks. And you may look and say, well, that's not a big deal. Who's speaking here? An Egyptian servant. And what's he saying? Yahweh, your God and the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God has done this for you. And that's amazing coming out of the mouth of Egyptian pagan. No, no Egyptian talks like that. Your God and the God of your fathers. Why is this Egyptian servant speaking like this? Because he's been evangelized by Joseph. Joseph has impacted his life. But notice what he says. Peace. Don't be afraid. God has done this. And it's the same message to us. As guilty sinners, we have every reason to fear the day of judgment. We have every reason to to be afraid of of hell, to be afraid of that final day, to to die in our sins and and to, to be fearful of that day. But here's what God says to us through Jesus Christ. God says, peace. Do not be afraid. What kind of peace does God give us? Well, it's a peace that passes understanding, but it's a peace that says to us, not guilty. A peace that says your sins are forgiven. A peace that says you have perfect standing in front of your Heavenly Father. A peace that says all is past. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You can go up and look Colossians 1, 19-22 on your own. Colossians 1, 19-22. I don't have time for the sake of time to read that, but let me just ask you again, why is this such a surprise? Why is it such a surprise that these guilty, fearful brothers would get peace? The same reason why it was a surprise that they got mercy. God's not obligated to grant us peace. God's not obligated to grant us mercy, but he does. He does. 
So the message for you today is if you are guilty and you feel that guilt and you fear death and you fear your sin and you're under condemnation and you're not quite sure why you feel the way you do, but you know that you're guilty and you know that if you were to die, you'd spend eternity separated from Christ, the answer to that problem is Jesus comes to you and says, peace, God has taken it away. Mercy, I'm granting that to you. But let me ask you a question. Is that peace and is that mercy just automatic? Can God just do it automatically? Or does it require a substitute? Does it require someone else to die in the place of us? To bear the punishment, to bear the guilt? Yes, it does. It requires Jesus. And here's surprise number three. Here's the biggest surprise in this whole story. Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin to bear eternal guilt. This is a plot twist. Reuben acted foolishly last week and was going to sacrifice his sons, but what does Judah say? Judah steps up to the plate and says, I will take it upon myself to bear eternal guilt forever in the place of Benjamin. The true leader says, I will offer myself. Look at verse 9. Judah doesn't say, I'm going to sacrifice my sons, send somebody else to do it. He steps up to the plate and says in verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Let me bear the blame forever. Do you realize in the Hebrew text what the word bear the blame is in the original language? In the original language, it literally reads, let me be a sin offering. Let me be a sin offering of guilt forever. Judah is saying, Jacob, if I don't bring Benjamin back, I'm going to die in his place and incur all the wrath that you have to bear that guilt forever. I'm stepping up to the plate and I'm going to take it. Does that sound hauntingly familiar of what Jesus Christ has done for us? Jesus didn't send somebody else to take care of it. Jesus stepped up to the plate and said, I will bear the wrath forever. I will bear the guilt forever. I will stand as a substitute in the place of sinners that are hostile against me. And I will voluntarily lay down my life and I will bear that guilt forever so that their sin can be taken care of. And it's no surprise. What tribe is Jesus from? He's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Do you see how history's unfolding here? Reuben's not the leader. Simeon's not the leader. Levi's not the leader. Not even Joseph's the leader. How will this family be saved? Through Judah. That eventually comes the lineage of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took upon our sin. He became a sin offering. Just like Judas said, I will bear the guilt. I will be a sin offering. And then Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The only way that you and I can experience peace 
The only way you and I can experience mercy, the only way you and I can experience forgiveness is because Jesus voluntarily laid his life down and took the guilt and the pain and the shame and the suffering and the penalty and everything that you and I deserve to come barreling down upon us because of our sin. Jesus stood in the gap and said, I'm voluntarily taking it myself. And that is the greatest plot twist in all of history. Who would ever believe that the king of the universe would leave the glories of heaven and come to earth and live a perfect life that none of us could live and die on a cross for sinners that hated him, that rebelled against him, and then put him in the grave and three days later rise again as king of kings and lord of lords and extends himself to everyone that would call upon his name and say, I have died in your place as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me for forgiveness. Come to me for salvation. I voluntarily laid down my life life. That's the greatest plot to us in all of history. Nobody expects that. Nobody expects that. And guess what? One day in heaven, we're going to bow before this lion. Revelation chapter 5 tells us this. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So John, what do you see? Do you see a lion or do you see a lamb? And the answer is yes. The lion from the tribe of Judah who has conquered and the lamb that was slaughtered, King Jesus. From the lion of the tribe of Judah. So do you need outrageous mercy because of your overwhelming sin today? Do you need peace because of your fear and your guilt today? Then let's all bow before the lion of the tribe of Judah and submit ourselves to King Jesus who's the only one who can forgive us totally of all of our sins. Never get over the surprise. Never get over the surprise of God's amazing love for rebellious sinners. The moment you get over that is the moment your heart begins to grow cold. Wake up every day with the passion that God saved you when he didn't have to. And God loves to save sinners who will come to him And there may be many in this room this morning who've never called upon the name of Jesus. And you know, deep in your heart, I can't look into your hearts. All I know is that the Holy Spirit's working at this point in time, and you know, deep in your heart, you're guilty. You know deep in your heart that you are sinful. You know deep in your heart that if you were to die today and stand before God, you would have nothing to say. You know it deep in your heart. And there's a lot of things you can do. You can fight it. You can let it go in one ear and out the other. You can try to resist it. Or you can wave the white flag of surrender and say, I give up. Jesus, save me. And you know what he does? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, he will save. So if you're guilty and you're hopeless and you're helpless this morning, call out to Jesus and find salvation in the lion who has conquered from the tribe of Judah. Let's bow our heads this morning and let's go to this lion.
from the tribe of Judah in prayer. And I just think it's important It's important for us as God's people to never get over our salvation. So would you spend some time right now thanking the Lord for saving you, praising the Lord for saving you, thanking Him for His mercy, thanking Him for His peace, thanking Him for His forgiveness. Don't walk out this door without coming face to face with sovereign grace. Would you spend time thanking the Lion of the tribe of Judah for going to the cross for you? Do we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to save sinners and change lives? If you believe that this morning, you should be praying like crazy for God to do a work of grace in hearts that are lost this morning. There may be those that are sitting around you that are in this place this morning and we don't know why they're here or maybe they've been here time and time again, but we should be pleading before the throne of grace for God to save sinners this morning with the confidence that he can do it. So Father, I pray that in your grace and your mercy you would reach down, take out hearts of stone, and replace them with hearts of flesh that beat with love for Jesus. Reach down from heaven and wipe away the guilt and the stain of sin that many in this room are sitting in as they look to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Holy Spirit, would you please open up hearts and minds and eyes to see Jesus today? Would Would it not be a day as usual at Emmanuel Baptist Church where we come and we hear a message and we leave, but Lord, will we truly come and be impacted because we've come face to face with the sovereign God who loves to save sinners, and and would you do that? Would you save sinners? And those of us who have been saved, we never get over the fact that you love us, that you've saved us. Would it never become too comfortable? Would it never become too complacent? But Lord, will we be in awe every day that we wake up, that you you show grace to the guilty and you show mercy to the hardened and you show compassion to the rebellious. Would our eyes always be on Jesus? the lion from the tribe of Judah who has conquered and the slaughtered lamb. Because one day, Jesus, we're going to stand before you in that day in heaven. And that's all we're going to be singing for millions and millions of years is about what you've done. So we better get used to it now. So thank you, Jesus, for saving us. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.